0: Okay, this is Hebrews 2020, a book in progress. We see Jesus, and we're already at increment 60 in our line upon line, here a little, there a little, increment upon increment study of this phenomenal homily, which we could also call Regarding Completion, as well as We See Jesus, or we could call it Such a Great Salvation. Many titles would apply. Today we're going to go to First Samuel before we get to our Hebrews text. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 35. 1 Samuel 2 and 35. I think you'll see the importance of the scripture very soon, very quickly, into our message today. I want to announce also that we may be having, or I intend to have, a remote communion service very fairly soon, sometime in October, so that will give you time to garner your necessary supplies to procure your oyster crackers or unleavened bread and your grape juice so that you can participate as an individual or as families in a remote communion service. So we'll begin with a word of prayer today Father we thank you that you've granted us a glorious opportunity In such a time as this To focus our attention on your son And on what he's doing right now And that is advocating for us, interceding for us In the power of an indestructible life At your right hand And to have such an advocate Such a motivator And such a God and such a great archpriest is our phenomenal privilege today. And as you and your son speak through the Holy Spirit today, we pray that you'll grant us an attentive heart and a mind that concentrates so that we can in fact progress on to completion as Hebrews beckons us to do. We thank you for this privilege for this opportunity, in Christ's name, amen. For the section of the homily that begins with the first mention of Jesus as archpriest, I've chosen archpriest over high priest because of the Greek word archieros and so it's more accurate, I think. Archpriest, the first mention of him in 2.17 as archpriest signals the first note in a symphonic theme that will travel through the rest of this epistle. And for 2.17 on through 3.6 and beyond, we ought to look to a verse in the Old Testament that isn't quoted outrightly here, but it is definitely alluded to. That verse is 1 Samuel 2.35. Now in the Greek text, which this PT, this pastor theologian, Utilizes almost exclusively for the Old Testament. That book is called Rains, R E I G N S, like the Who song, Love, Rain or Me. That's a good prayer, by the way. Love, Rain or Me. Rains. There's first, second, and third, and fourth rains in the Greek version. What is to us in our English Bible 1st and 2nd Samuel followed by 1st and 2nd Kings in the Greek text is 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Reigns or Kingdoms. And so in 1st Samuel 2.35 in the Greek text the it is the first of four sequential books called Reigns and so it is 1st Reigns 2.35 we have the following verse, and I want to be very careful to look at it in some detail today and conflate it with some other verses. It says, and this is the prophecy that is spoken by an unnamed man of God. God is speaking in him as a prophet in accordance with Hebrews 1.1. He is speaking to Eli, a the high priest of Israel in the time in which Samuel was born and was a small boy at this time. And in his priestly house, he has two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. This prophecy is about the end of that household because the household was unfaithful and the priests in it were unmerciful to the people, so much so that the people began to, as the Scripture says, despise the offering of the Lord. We would say today they began to hate going to church because of the egregious behavior of the church leaders. So here's the prophecy of this man of God to Eli. And again, remember, it is God speaking in a prophet. I will, and I will raise up, the Greek word there is Anastaso from the verb anistemi or anistemi in the future tense. Anistemi, A-N-I-S-T-E-M-I, and its noun counterpart, anastasis, is used for bodily resurrection throughout the New Testament. And so we want to put that meaning and attach that meaning here. And I will raise up, he says, again, the future tense of stami, the word for bodily resurrection in such passages as John 639, 640, 644, and 654, and we're going to see it also in Hebrews 7.11 and 7.15 down the road here, as well as in connection with Hebrews 13.20. Backing up, as is our habit in looking at a verse exegetically, and I will raise up for myself, God is speaking, again, in this prophet, the word for myself, emauto, E-M-A-U-T-O. And we're going to learn that that is related to what Hebrews 2.17 calls things pertaining to God. And I also thought immediately of Genesis twenty two eight, when Isaac asked Abraham, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a sacrifice for himself. And the word for provide there actually is horao, to see. God will see a lamb for the sacrifice. And this, of course, relates intimately to our subject that we see Jesus, that lamb. Backing up again, I'm just exegeting this passage, expanding a little bit on it. And I will raise up for myself, says God. Listen carefully to this. A faithful priest. Please notice that. Faithful, P-I-S-T-O-S, pistos, and priest, hierus. That's H-I-E-R-E-U-S in the English translation. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. And everything that is in my heart, God refers to himself as having a heart, as he does in 1st Samuel 13:14 when he calls David a man after God's own heart David as king this time he's talking about a priest who does everything that's in his heart everything that is in my heart and my soul and in my soul God speaks to us about himself as having a soul Is it figurative, is it metaphorical, or is it something else? Again, we'll back up because I'm exegeting and expanding. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest and everything that is in my heart. Again, Samuel, or 1st Reigns, 1st Samuel predicts a king who will do everything in God's heart and will be a man after God's own heart. We know that the man that is the ultimate king that does everything in God's heart, is Jesus. We also know that the faithful priest that he raises up for himself is Jesus. In one man, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and humanity, we have this faithful priest and this obedient king backing up again. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, and everything that is in my heart And in my soul, you can compare that to Hebrews 10.38 where it talks about God's soul, where he says, my soul has no pleasure in those who turn back and who quit their faithfulness, as it were. And my soul, he will do. Everything that is in my heart and in my soul, he will do. This faithful priest will do. And then notice the second half of this prediction, this prophecy. And I will make for him a faithful house. Faithful priest, Hebrews two one two seventeen, to 17. Faithful house is the subject of Hebrews chapter 3, throughout the whole chapter, but especially Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. He will do all that's in my heart and soul, and I will make for him a faithful house, that's a family, which will go in the authority of my Christ, the word is actually in the Greek Christou, Christu mu, my Christ, all the days. If you interpret this as he going in the authority of my Christ, then that priest is the Christ. If you interpret it as the faithful house going in the authority of Christ, it's speaking of a house that God's raise, God raises up, who function in the faithfulness of this priest. They participate in his faithfulness. Now, that is a kind of a minute exegesis of 1st Reigns or 1st Samuel 2.35. Here it is in its final form, my translation from the Greek text. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, and everything that is in my heart he will do. And I will make for him a faithful house, which will go in the authority of my Christ, all the days. That means always to perpetuity. So in this verse there appears the two themes of priest and house. Priest and house are a solidarity, a unity. The priest is one with the house in the faithfulness of the priest. The priest and his house are one, like the sanctifier and the sanctified are of one entity, with one father, in Hebrews 2.11. The overarching theme, then, in Hebrews, or in this homily that we call Hebrews, this sermon within a letter, the overarching theme of it is regarding completion, which is found in the introduction of 56 canonical psalms, as we've seen. And it still pertains. The themes of faithful priest and house, oikos, congeal in Hebrews 2.17 through 3.6. I'm preparing you then to advance in this study. Beyond that, the significance of this verse carries on through the rest of Hebrews, beyond chapter 3. And for an example of that, all the way in Hebrews 10 and verse 21, we have both house and priest in one verse, just like we do in 1 Samuel 2.35. It says, we have a superior archpriest over the house of God. With the term faithful archpriest, therefore, we are dealing with Christology, the theology of Christ. With the term house, the house that God will build for him, we're dealing with ecclesiology, the study of the church, that which Hebrews also calls the church of the firstborn. Ecclesia, prototokon, ecclesia, prototokon, and that's the Church of the Firstborn, Hebrews twelve twenty three. They are pictured with Jesus and with the blood of Jesus that is more eloquent than the blood of Abel, and with a myriad of angels and with the spirits of justified people made perfect. In festive gathering in the heavens, the church of the firstborn is seen with them all. God raises up via resurrection from the dead, therefore, a faithful priest and builds him a faithful house or creates for him a faithful family. That family can only be faithful as a household of priests if they imitate the faithfulness of the faithful priest. The faithful Archpriest they can only be truly faithful as they walk in love as cherished childrens as cherished children of God, as Christ walked and offered himself as a fragrant aroma offering to god that's ephesians five two They can only imitate the faithfulness of the faithful priest archpriest, if they participate in his. Faithfulness, if they, that is we, live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, in Galatians 2.20. This faithful priest, of course, is Jesus. We see him as our faithful archpriest, exalted to the Father's right hand. We see him in his activity as intercessor for us. We see him interceding for us in the power of an indestructible life. We see him interceding for us to save us to the uttermost, which means to the maximum, to the point where we have a bodily resurrection, where we enjoy a body of glory like he himself inhabits at the right hand of the Father. So this faithful faithful priest is Jesus. He has done in the days of his flesh and he is doing in the time of his glory all that is in God's heart and soul. He is God's Christ. God's Christ, Christos, is both a faithful priest and a king who does all God's will. He is God's Christ. I will raise up for myself, says God faithful priest. Why for himself? Because the priest speaks to God on behalf of people. He speaks to God on behalf of people. He is a servant in the heavenlies with things that pertain to God, as Hebrews 2.17 says. I hope we can explain that a little bit in subsequent messages. So he is the faithful priest he has done and is doing all that is in God's heart and soul. He is God's Christ. God's Christ, as he's called in Luke twenty-three thirty-five. is he in whom God intends to sum up all things. And I hope you'll see the continuity of this because only the Holy Spirit can teach it in such a way that it's understood. He is, God intends in him to sum up all things, tapanta, as we have seen many, many times in previous studies, Ephesians 1.10. The house that God is building is for him. And the house that God is building for him is the prolepsis of that eschatological summation of everything. It will one day be all things as a new creation because God, the builder of of a house for his faithful priest is also called, and listen carefully to this, the builder and maker of all things in Hebrews three, four. So the house that God is building is a mere prolepsis for what God is going to be doing by summing up all things in his Son. By summing up everything in His Son, God builds a universal house, a a house that is in union with his son. This is what is in God's heart. This is what's in God's heart and in God's soul, his heart and soul. Jesus is the faithful priest that God has raised up. Ultimately, that means through resurrection. And this is how it applies to us we show ourselves to be his house. If indeed we are holding fast the confidence and the pride of our eschatological hope, that's a godly pride, a godly confidence and boldness, we are his house, or we show ourselves to be his house. If indeed we are holding fast the confidence and boldness, the courage, of our eschatological hope, Hebrews 3.6. I hope you haven't lost your ultimate eschatological hope by seeing a few things that you may have hoped for in this life fall by the wayside. Don't be discouraged and rather be encouraged because your eschatological hope is about to be fulfilled. The word that is deployed in one reigns, first reigns, also known as 1 Samuel 2.35, for raise up, as I've said before, is the verb that is most often used for the resurrection in the New Testament. And that is a n A-N-I-S-T, long E-M-I. And its noun counterpart, anastasis, anastasis, That's A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-S. And it's used for the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I actually counted too many times to list in this message where it's used as that. And also it's used for the resurrection of all the dead in him and by him throughout the whole New Testament. Resurrection is a prominent motif in Hebrews. Someone may argue against that because it's not mentioned except for once in Hebrews but I argue that resurrection is a prominent motif in Hebrews because not because it is mentioned a lot many times it's only explicitly mentioned once in Hebrews 13:20 although prominently where we're told that the God of peace led up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep our Lord Jesus because of the blood of the everlasting covenant. In other words, God's resurrection of his son was with a view to and really was the result of the blood of the everlasting covenant, which is exercised by Jesus' death. His death was the blood of the everlasting covenant that ratified it forever. And because he fulfilled all that was in God's heart and soul in the days of his flesh, God raised him from the dead to do all that's in God's heart and soul forever and on our behalf. Jesus acts on behalf of God, but he acts also on behalf of us and to our benefit. He acts for the glory of God and for the benefit of humankind and especially the benefit of those who are comporting themselves as his house today. And we show ourselves to be his house if we're holding fast the confidence and boldness of our hope. I can't emphasize that enough. The resurrection of Jesus is prominent in Hebrews, therefore, because there is no exaltation of him to the right hand of God in the heavens without resurrection, There is no constant intercession for us in the power of an indestructible life, as it's called in Hebrews 7.16. There is no intercession for us in the power of an indestructible life without his having been first resurrected. He was crucified in weakness. He lives by the power of God. That's one of my favorite two-edged verses in 2 Corinthians 13.4. Equally importantly, there is no resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, on the other hand, without the blood of the everlasting covenant, which is his expiating and propitiatory death, which in turn was necessary to make him complete as our arch-priest, our merciful and faithful arch-priest. And we'll be getting into the meaning of propitiation again, and I call it propitiation slash expiation because those two meanings are inherent in one word, as we're going to see, but not today. Down the road, we're going to get into what it means that he made propitiation expiation for our sins. For a long time now, and for a long time before the writing of Hebrews, particularly in what's known as the Qumran community, where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from the writings of that community. Qumran is Q-U-M-R-A-N. It was a community of Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, around the Dead Sea, and apparently destroyed at the time of the Roman invasion on its way to Jerusalem. But the Qumran community and the writings of it had an expectation of two messiahs. One was a priest and another was a king. And I think this is a reasonable expectation because it looks like two different people or two different figures are being prophesied, one a priest and one a king. But as we're taught throughout the New Testament and especially in Hebrews, the one messiah, Christ Jesus, is both king and priest. This is most clearly and copiously brought out in the P.T.'s ingenious and inspired exposition regarding Melchizedek, who also was both a priest and a king. Hopefully, we'll get into that in some detail in the heart of Hebrews. In fact, in Hebrews 7.11, we'll go to the heart now just for a moment, the heart and soul of Hebrews, In Hebrews 7.11, and if you're following along with me, you can turn in your Bibles to that, that very word, honestemi, is found, it's used, resurrection word, honestemi, when the PT asks this rhetorical question, a rhetorical question that is central to his whole argument in this epistle or in this homily. And here's my translation of Hebrews 7.11. If, therefore... Completion, please notice that this is about completion, regarding completion. The word here is teleosis, T E L E I, long O S I S, teleosis, related to the word to telestai and other perfection or completion terminology in the New Testament. If, therefore, completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood under which the people were given the law, Then why was there yet the need to raise up, and there's the word Anistemi, another priest according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron? Now, That's a good question because we have this Levitical priesthood operative all through the Pentateuch and on beyond that. So why then does he speak in Psalm 110.4, LXX 109.4, of the need for a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron? That's because there is no completion by the Levitical priesthood. The sacrifices they offered could not take away sin, nor could they complete the worshippers as we're going to find out in Hebrews 10one to 4. So from there, the PT shows that the one about whom these things are said, quote, belonged to a different tribe from Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, Moses' brother Aaron, and Levi. Both Moses and Aaron, incidentally, were from a priestly family. Moses was technically a priest, as was Aaron, but Aaron had the mantle fall on him. Again, the PT shows from Hebrews 11 on that the one, capital O-N-E, about whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe from Aaron and Levi. So he wasn't qualified to be a priest is the argument according to the physical descent from a certain tribal belonging. It's a tribe from which no one has ever yet been selected to be a priest and to serve at the altar. We all know, he said, And all these readers would know very well, whether they were Gentiles or Jews, they knew the scriptures. And he says that we know that he belonged to a different tribe from Aaron and Levi, a tribe from which no one had ever been selected to be a priest and to serve at the altar, Hebrews 7.13. Then he says, and I kind of skipped over 7.12 for reasons that will be apparent down the road, he then says it's known to everyone, Everybody knows, it's known to everyone, that our Lord came from Judah. That's a tribe, the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah was a royal tribe. It was the tribe from which David came. So it's known to everyone. Everybody knows that our Lord, that's Jesus Christ, came from Judah. And that from that tribe, Moses never said anything about priests, That's Hebrews 7.14. And then he goes on to say, and we'll hit these things with much more detail down the road, Lord willing, and if the crick don't rise, and if historical trends don't get even wackier than they are now. Oh, wait, they will. But it says in Hebrews 7.15 and 16, my translation, and this becomes abundantly clearer. If a different kind of priest, notice that, a different kind of priest, one like Melchizedek, not one like Aaron, not one like Levi, not one like Eli, not one like Hophni and Phinehas, his overweight sons, and I'm not being politically incorrect. They were overweight for a reason, and that's because they ate the best of the offerings of the people, and they were cruel to the people. And they went into the houses with a three-pronged fork and pulled the sacrifices right off the fire and ate them for themselves right in the sanctuary. They weren't faithful priests. They weren't merciful priests. They were cruel to God's people. They even had sex with women that gathered around like fans outside of the sanctuary. And so, obviously, we're not talking about faithful priests there. Eli dropped the ball by not restraining his sons That's a huge problem today, too. He didn't restrain his sons. And therefore, a military victory by the Philistines captured the ark. All because Eli didn't restrain his sons, who operated as priests, because he was too aging and too ill. Partly ill because of age, partly ill because of overeating, as his sons did. So, and this becomes abundantly clear, it says in Hebrews 7.15, if a different kind of priest, one like Melchizedek, arises, guess what word that is, anistemi, anistemi. Again, one who arises, one who doesn't become a priest based on a legal command concerning physical descent, but on the basis of an indestructible life. He's raised up and becomes a priest on the basis of the resultant indestructible life that's his on the basis of resurrection from the dead. So we have a different kind of priest here when we compare The priesthood of Aaron, also known as the priesthood of Levi or the Levitical priesthood with the priesthood of Jesus Christ according to the order of or the priestly order of Melchizedek, we are talking about the law of similarity and dissimilarity. And here the emphasis falls on the dissimilarity. A different kind of priest was needed and a faithful priest was needed. That's accentuated by the fact that the priesthood failed miserably in such generations as Samuel's early generation under Levi and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. You can read all about that in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, especially the first two chapters of 1 Samuel, which in the LXX is first reigns. All of this goes to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead by which he serves all the days to perpetuity. That is, he doesn't end his priesthood with his physical death. Our great archpriest serves forever or into perpetuity and not just until the end of his life in the flesh, which ended at the cross. He is constituted a priest not on the basis of a command of the Mosaic Law that one had to be of the tribe of Levi and a descendant of Aaron, but on the overriding basis of resurrection from the dead. That overrides everything, and that means an indestructible life, Hebrews 7.16. First Samuel, also known as First Reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S, love, reign, or me, reigns, has to do with the prophecy of a messianic king from the genetic line of David, and the prediction of a priest who's raised up, and who does all that is in God's heart and soul. So, if you compare 1 Samuel 13:14 about the king that God prophesies, and 2 Samuel 7:14, where he was alluded to in Hebrews 1:5, with 1 Samuel 2:35, you got Jesus as a king and a priest, Messiah. Jesus fits the bill on both counts. He does all that is in God's heart and soul, which means he became obedient to the Father's salvific, universal will up to the extent of death by crucifixion, which is a maximum nth degree extent. Therefore God exalted him, and that's where Hebrews takes up. So Jesus fits the bill on both counts. He is the priest and the king as the Christ. He is the minister in things that pertain to God says Hebrews 2:17 He has made propitiation expiation also known as Purification for sins in Hebrews one three, compared with Hebrews two seventeen, and he intercedes for us to God in the power of an indestructible life. So he's like the priests of the Old Testament or the Levitical priest in that he performs the duty of propitiation expiation. But he's unlike those priests in that he performed that duty of expiation, putting away sin or propitiation which people interpret as the turning away of the wrath of God, he fulfills both of these by the offering of himself. And we'll get into that propitiation and the meaning and the misunderstanding of what it means down the road. There's a lot to that, and I haven't even begun to tap it in my own study like I should. So he has made purification, propitiation for sins, and he intercedes for us to God. That's the second major thing that the priests do. They intercede for the people with God. Jesus does that too, but he does it not in the power of a legal commandment, but in the power of an indestructible life. Dissimilarity and similarity constantly throughout. And so, he does it in the power of an indestructible life in a body of imperishable constitution. The kind of body that we are guaranteed to have when he comes without having to deal with sin with an, and he comes again with sin out of the way, and he consummates our so great salvation. In Hebrews 9.28, along with Philippians 3.20, conflate those two. Again, 1st Reigns 2.35, A.K. 1st Samuel 2.35, has both priest and house in the wording of its prophetic disclosure. This prophecy, which is said to be spoken by a man of God in 1st Samuel 2.26, Against Eli's household is an example of God speaking in the prophets in times long before Hebrews was written. Hebrews 1 1. Hebrews, what we're studying, is about what God has spoken in a son. That includes the faithful archpriesthood of Jesus, ongoing now, and the disclosure about his household, which, unlike Eli's corrupt priestly household, Will last forever. Hebrews 3 1, we're getting there very soon in our study, urges the readers and hearers of this homily to, quote, consider Jesus, there his name is used again, the apostle and archpriest of our confession. Hebrews 3 2 begins a discussion of God's house, or household, oikos, and refers to Jesus as the builder of the house and as such. He is one with God, and one who is deserving of a more honor, more honor and glory than Moses, who was merely faithful in God's house. The writer, the PT, says, Jesus is due more honor than Moses, as one who builds the house is more honorable than a servant in the house, as we could see it. We have gone through a pretty extensive section of this discourse, in which Jesus' superiority to angels is highlighted. We could say that goes all the way from four through 2.16. Hebrews 3.1 begins a section where Jesus is shown to be superior to Moses and where Jesus' fidelity or faithfulness is shown to be a far more significant factor in God's overall plan than Moses' faithfulness was. That's kind of controversial to some of the readers here, and now today too. Now, we may wonder why Moses is dealt with after angels in the PT's argument for Jesus being the superior intermediary agent of God's will. The reason for the ascending order of this argument, in other words, Jesus, with the argument goes like this. Jesus is greater than angels. He is even greater than Moses. Now, we would probably think in our days, we'd probably say, wait a minute, it should be the other way around. They should show first Jesus is greater than Moses and then say Jesus is even greater than angels. So why is it reversed? Instead, he's saying that Jesus is greater than angels, he is even greater than Moses. Why is he saying it that way? Because in some circles before and at the time of the preaching of this sermon, many, including probably some of the, the members of the church that he's addressing, held Moses to be superior to angels. Philo and others taught that. That's the reason that the argument that makes a case from the lesser to the greater goes like this. Jesus is greater than angels. That's the argument of Hebrews. He's even greater than Moses. Rather than Jesus is greater than Moses, he's even greater than angels, which is how we might suppose it should go. So Hebrews says Jesus is greater than angels. He's even greater than Moses because Moses was considered to be greater than angels as a mediator or as an intermediary agent of God's will, of his creative and salvific will. We'll get into that a little more down the road. Maybe it's a shocker for you for not right now. But in Hebrews three, five through six A, alluding to Numbers twelve seven, again, alluding to Numbers twelve seven, Moses was said to be faithful in all God's household. But the writer says, yeah, he was faithful in all God's household as a testimony to what God was going to disclose later. But then the PT says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household. The faithfulness of the son is precisely that which God was to disclose, of which Moses was merely a testimony. Jesus said it again in John 5, Moses was writing about me. You believe about Moses, then you should believe what he was saying. He was talking about me in John 5, 40 to 47. So the argument is also not dissimilar to the one Jesus put forth in John 8:35 to those people who, yes, believed in him, but then fought tooth and nail against him. He said the servant does not abide in the house forever speaking of Moses, but the son abides forever, speaking of Jesus. And so the servant and the son are dissimilar here. There's other places where, of course, Jesus is called the servant of Yahweh, but not in this analogy. This is a separate analogy. Moses is likened to the faithful servant in God's house, but Jesus is the faithful son who abides forever. What is more, Hebrews 3, 6b says that we prove ourselves to be Christ's household, quote, if we hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope. In other words, what makes people think that we are of God's house? Or what demonstrates to people, whether they believe it or not, that we are of God's house? Well, we hold on to, we courageously and confidently hold on to a hope for a new creation, to a hope of Christ being summed up and summing up all things in himself. You don't lose that hope. If some of your hopes in this world are shattered, do not lose that eschatological hope. That's what demonstrates you to be of the household of God. That's our practice as the household of God. We hold fast to an unshakable hope as an anchor for the soul in these troubled times, as Hebrews 6.20 calls it. Much more will be coming on that because that's practical exhortation. So, Moses is likened to the faithful servant, but Jesus is the son. We don't participate in Moses' faithfulness. We participate in the faithfulness of the Son of God, as Galatians 2.20 says it. What is more, Hebrews three six B again says we are his house. At the time, right now today, it's not my goal or my purpose to do a detailed exegesis of Hebrews three one to six, but hopefully I've wet your appetite for it. I'm merely showing that first Samuel two thirty five, that's reigns 235, one reigns 235 in the Septuagint, is an important scriptural basis for Hebrews, the whole epistle in one sense, especially the section we're now beginning to study. Throughout this sermon, we are struck, at least I am, with the intimate connection the writer has with the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Again, This leads us to believe that the author is a Hellenistic Jewish Christian, like Stephen. Although he's not Stephen, because Stephen died long before the writing and publishing of this sermon. 1 Samuel 2.35, then, is part of a prophecy against the household of Eli. Let me give you some context in our final segment of this message. 1 Samuel 2.35 is part of a prophecy against the household of Eli, the high priest, whose sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were delegated with aging Eli's duties, were unmerciful and unfaithful priests. The Bible rightly calls them sons of Belial, who knew not the Lord in 1 Samuel 2.12. They made themselves literally and figuratively fat with the best part of the offerings of God's people and did so even within the sanctuary. Now, if you're listening to this and you're a little overweight, there's no shame in that. But there is shame in getting fat by eating the offerings that were intended for God in the sanctuary. They also had sex with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle. Under Hophni and Phineas, the people of Israel began to, quote, abhor, hate, and detest the offering of the Lord, just as people today abhor church because of the egregious offenses of those who claim to be church leaders or even priests. Eli never restrained his sons. He never spoke even to them in rebuke or reproof. He should have dropped the hammer on them, and more than once. And because he never restrained him, that was his great failure, which led ultimately to the ark falling into the hands of the Philistines. Today, you'd only have to turn on the news at any given time in the day, and you'll see a bunch of unrestrained children headed for self-destruction. Sometimes, the young people there, you have to ask, Where are the parents? Are they like Eli? Are they in absentia, or are they just plain afraid to restrain their own children? That ended up in military victory by a belligerent power in the case of Eli and his sons, because they held the responsibility of the priestly house. So this great failure... Resulted ultimately in the ark falling into the hands of the Philistines, which was not recovered until the day of David. As Second Peter 2, 1-2 to says of men like these who deny the Lord that bought them, it says many will follow their unrestrained ways. And because of them the way of truth will be slandered. That's Second Peter two, one to two. So contrary to Eli, God, our Father, chastens every son whom he receives. He scourges every son whom he receives, is the harsher language of Hebrews twelve six, harsh but loving. And Jesus rebukes and chastens, he said, as many as I love. As many as I love, he says, I rebuke and chasten, Revelation 3.19. This is to the end that we, his people, would, quote, deny godlessness and worldly lusts and live a sensible, righteous, and godly way, in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, Titus 2.12. And we know that that age is an evil age. In Galatians one four, by so doing, by living godly, righteously, and soberly in this age, we will be able to serve the living God as effective priests and represent our generation as we beseech God for mercy in their behalf. Hebrews four fifteen and sixteen. Even Jesus practiced obedience in the days of his flesh, though he was and still is, and always was, the eternal son. I don't need to remind you that his obedience was to the benefit of many. Your obedience is also to the benefit of many, although incomparable to Jesus' fidelity and the benefit that accrues from it. In maximum contrast to Eli, therefore, in maximum contrast to Eli, the archpriest at the time when the prophet Samuel was a boy. And in stark contrast to his house, headed up by Hophni and Phinehas, is Jesus, the archpriest, and his house, which we demonstrate ourselves to be when we courageously and confidently hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus. There is another section of Hebrews, namely 12 five through seventeen in which the in which the we are actually encouraged as members of God's house and household to understand something that unlike Eli's sons we are restrained restrained from drifting restrained from turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. We are restrained. That explains some of the things going on in our lives today. We are restrained by a loving father, by the father's loving chastisement, and the Holy Spirit's restraint through the word of God. Otherwise, we'd be more like Hophni and Phineas, and teach people to abhor the offering of the Lord. We stand in our own nation on the verge of its conquest by a belligerent nation or league of nations. We stand on the verge of that conquest right now. And that can turn on the basis of the faithfulness of a household of priests. Or it can actually be brought about that conquest because of the unrestrained Habits of people who call themselves Christians and some who don't. So in closing, today then and every day. It boils down to this. Today and every day. If you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, maybe you have through this message. Don't harden your hearts. The Spirit speaks today. He is speaking to the churches, says Revelation 2.7, 2.11, 2.17, He is speaking today. The Spirit speaks today and every day about Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and all the days, forever. If we're commanded to focus our attention not on the evanescent seen and sensed things of this evil age, and to focus our attention rather on things which are not seen or sensed, and are everlasting, then the first thing we are to be attentive to is Jesus as our archpriest. He's not seen, but he's everlastingly our archpriest, who is ministering in a way in heaven that faithfully executes all that is in God's heart and soul. All that is in God's heart and soul has to do with mercy and fidelity and love. Matthew 23, 23, Luke eleven forty two, 42, and other places. Now, in, as a final word, I want to say this as a pastor. If you send me a two-hour or three-hour or one-hour video, I'm not going to watch it. I'm invested totally in studying Hebrews and totally and completely in it. I respect what you want me to listen to, but I'm, going, I'm totally focused on this, and therefore I'm focused on our great archpriest. If you think that you're going to talk to me about dispensational weirdness and about some crazy prophetic things that are being said about our time and identifying certain figures of our time with the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet and this and that, then you can just forget it altogether because I've already studied Revelation in 515 hours and demonstrated the true meaning of Revelation is the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. I'm teaching Hebrews to show that that universally saving significance Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, and that the purpose of this study is to focus our attention on Jesus Christ, our faithful high priest, not on the stupid, unlearned, and unprincipled schemes of spiritual morons that are trying to make uh, make some kind of money off writing and teaching about trying to interpret this time as a time of prophetic fulfillment in a weird way rather than as a time to focus on Jesus Christ so that's where I stand that's where I'm standing and will continue to stand so you cannot restrain me from speaking the word of truth neither can you distract me from my study of Hebrews I know a lot of you aren't paying attention to it I know a lot of you are paying attention to it. I can tell who is and who isn't. And I know who is and who isn't. It doesn't matter. My prayer is that we will all pay attention to Jesus Christ and to look unto him, the author and finisher of our faith, and to run this race with patience and to see him as our great archpriest in this agona of the ages, in this turn of the ages, and in this time in which we could be witnessing the final death rattle of a nation or it's restoration. So thank you, Father. We pray that it will be the restoration of our nation. Grant us the grace to be a faithful priesthood like your son. Grant us the will and the power to be effective priests, interceding for mercy for our generation so that we may serve you to your glory and the benefit of our generation and generations to come, not only in our nation but across this world. We ask this prayer. It seems like a lofty one, but you're a lofty God who inhabits a lofty place with the one who is crushed for our sins. We pray it in his name. Amen.